Today's sermon title is Mountains and Valleys. Mountains and Valleys. The day before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, he was uh, doing some work in Memphis on behalf of some uh, factory workers. He was, he was uh, campaigning and, and giving speeches against uh, civil rights disparities, racism in the workplace, disparity that was going on there. And this speech would go on to be very prophetic as the very next day Martin Luther King Jr. would be assassinated. I want to read to you the last paragraph from that speech and I want you to hear what Martin Luther King was saying and how prophetic it would be. Listen to this. Martin Luther King Jr. says this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just wanna do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now here's what's represented in that statement. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that hostility was growing. He knew that the threats against him were growing. He knew that the evil against him was growing and he knew the day was drawing near in which he would pass away. But he says, that's not gonna stop me from doing the work of fighting for civil rights because there is a greater purpose in what I'm doing than just simply living a long life. The greater purpose is equality. The greater purpose is abolishing and eradicating racism around this world. And he works hard for this. And eventually the very next day he is assassinated, but he says, I don't fear any man. And he says this because he has seen the promised land. He's employing biblical imagery here. He is talking about the moment when Moses is standing on the mountaintop and Moses sees the promised land and Moses knows he's not going to get there because of the sins of Israel, but he knows that Israel will indeed walk into the promised land. MLK knew that one day his agenda, the things he was fighting for would come to fruition. He has seen the promised land. He had a vision of what was coming and that was what was fueling him and compelling him to do this work despite the threats against his life. And eventually he would pass away and eventually the things he was working for would come to fruition in our country. Now, the reason why I talk about that, in today's story, we encounter one of the most well-known acts of Jesus, the transfiguration. By the way, transfiguration just means change or transform. In the transfiguration of Jesus, here's what we see. We see that glory and suffering are not incompatible. We live in a place and a time in which we have been told glory and suffering cannot come come together. Glory and suffering cannot be paired together. But in the biblical storyline, we see that glory and suffering hold hands together, that they are the same side of the, or they are two sides of the same coin. There is suffering and glory, mountaintops and valleys. And the daily reality for every Christian is that 
that we will face suffering in this world. We live in a broken world full of sin of which we participate in. And yet, just because we're suffering does not mean we do not have a coming glory. We have been on the mountaintop. We have seen the promised land. And we know what is coming our way as Christians. And because we know what's coming our way, we can endure the suffering here and now. We see this represented in the life and work of Martin Luther King Jr., facing suffering because of the coming glory. We see this in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, facing the suffering of the cross because of the eventual glory coming his way. The God on the mountaintop is the same God in the valley. The gospel that brings every Christian to glory is the same gospel that sustains every Christian through the valley. The spirit that gives us vision of our future hope is the same spirit that helps us endure patiently the deepest and the darkest of valleys of suffering. So what we're gonna look at today are the glory of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, and what this means for every Christian in this room. First, what I want to do is tie together last week with this week. Mark chapter nine, verse one, read it with me. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, if you remember back to last week, what was happening there? Jesus is giving his people a picture of what messiahship and discipleship look like. He is saying messiahship, my kingship, the anointing I have as the savior of the world. It, it is a cross-shaped messiahship. I am a crucified Messiah. And then he tells his disciples, count the cost before you follow me. Take up your cross daily. To follow a cross-shaped Messiah means we are cross-shaped disciples. And what Jesus is doing is promising for the first time in simple and plain terms that a cross is coming his way. He will die for the sins of this world and he will be resurrected on the third day, conquering sin, death, and the grave. He makes this promise last week and he says, every disciple that you're following me, that's the pattern you're following in. And then if you just heard me read the text a minute ago, the last half of, of not, verses nine through 13 in Mark nine, what does Jesus do? Again, he promises his death and his resurrection. He says, the son of man will be treated with contempt and he will face much suffering and death on our behalf. And right in the middle of these two promises of suffering, what Jesus does is he gives this hope of glory in his transfiguration. And again, what he's saying to us, and he's always beckoning us and he's always reminding us, as Christians, you will face suffering, and yet you have a coming glory. And in Mark 9, verse 1, he says there's a coming kingdom, and it's coming in power. And in that kingdom, you will live forevermore. Yes, you will taste physical death. Every one of us will. But those of us who are united to Christ by faith through grace, we will not face spiritual death. We will have life forevermore. This is our coming kingdom. This is our coming reality. And yet we will face suffering here and now as we await the not yet. So what I wanna do then is look at the glory of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, and what this means for us. First, the glory of Jesus. This is Jesus on the mountaintop. Look at Mark 9, verse two with me. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. All right, let's stop right there. Uh, Before I jump into the text, here's something I want to point out to us. Uh, God does not despise small. Let me say that again. God does not despise small. God does not despise fragile and weak. Here's why I say that. We see Jesus going up on a mountaintop in the transfiguration event, and he's got three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, just a small group of people. And this is a pattern we see all across scripture is God doing marvelous things through small things, through weak things, through fragile things. Let me just walk through the gospel of Mark show you this. I don't know if we have the graph as a slide. Do we have it? Good. The first, we see the transfiguration. In that event, what is there? There's three disciples there. At the empty tomb, when Jesus defeats death, who's there? Three women. When Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, there's only three disciples present. When he raises Jairus from the dead, there's only three people there that witness that. When he's praying in Gethsemane, uh, before he faces the cross, there's only three people with him. God does marvelous things through small people. The greater revelation of God, the smaller the group. Group of people. Now, here's why that's good news for us. We live in an American culture that says bigger, faster, uh, stronger is sexier. It's better. That the sign of prosperity is that it's big and that it moves fast. But that's not true. Listen, here's the deal. We gather once a month for prayer here at Story Church. And there's about 20, 30, sometimes 40 of us in this room together. And we're praying small prayers and weak prayers and fragile prayers. And yet God does not despise those prayer. God moves through prayer. And we're a small church with small resources, but that does not mean that God cannot do big things through Story Church, right? God does not despise small. And here's why that's good news for you. It's not just good news for the church, it's good news for you. We're all facing things in life. And sometimes we take on this mindset that that God must not care about that little thing. There's bigger things going on in this world. There's huge things going on. Yes, there is big things going on in this world. But God says, I see you, I know you, I care for you, no matter how big, no matter how small. He says, cast your cares on me. Bring your anxieties to me because I care for you. God does not despise small Do we believe this? Are we bringing this to the throne of grace, saying, God, you can do marvelous things through someone like me? That's not the main point, but that was a point I wanted to make. What's going on here is Mark is using some Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, He's bringing them together in some really beautiful ways, and I wanna show it to you. Right there at the beginning of verse two, he says, after six days, Days After six days, he goes up on a mountaintop. Now, if you know your Bibles, what, what is this bringing us back to? It's bringing us back to Moses. And I want to show you this event from the Exodus. We, we should have a, another graph up here. And you can tell when I design graphs versus when Sean does it or Scott does it, because that's literally copy and paste it from Microsoft Word. Uh, <laughs> it's all good, Right? So here's what's happening here from Mark 9 and Exodus. 
What, what happens? After six days, Jesus, Peter, James, and John go up the mountain. Moses did six days of preparation before he goes up on the mountain to receive from the Lord. Jesus takes three disciples with him. Moses brings three people with him. Jesus is transfigured, and, and verse three says, his clothes are radiantly white with glory. Moses, after he encounters God, he is radiantly white, showing off the glory of God. God appears in a veiled form in in an overshadowing cloud to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He does the same thing to Moses. A voice then speaks from the cloud at the transfiguration. The same thing happens to Moses. The people then are astonished when they see Jesus and his disciples coming off the mountain. The same thing happens in Exodus 35, almost exact wording. What's going on here? When you're studying your Bible, here's a word I want you to remember, particularly in studying the Old Testament. There's a word called typology. Typology is simply uh, a type, a person who represents a coming reality. A lot of the Old Testament are types of Jesus Christ, predicting Jesus who will be the fulfillment of that type. Moses happens to be one of the types of Christ. Moses going up on Mount Sinai is a type of Jesus coming and his transfiguration event. Look at verse three with me. His clothes, Jesus' clothes, become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That's, that's nuts. I've seen my mom bleach some stuff before, and there's no one cleaner than her, believe me. And it is white and clean. And Jesus is like greater than that. Um, like, I don't even breathe at my mom's house for fear of like saliva getting somewhere and ruining it. Don't even dare. So what's happening At Moses' event on Mount Sinai, it was his enthronement as the leader over the people of Israel. What was communicated to all of Israel is that Moses was God's chosen man to lead Israel at this time. What Moses was called to do was bring God's law to Israel, to bring God's rulership to Israel, to bring God's presence to Israel through the temple. And it was just simply a type of this transfiguration event. What Moses does in part, Jesus comes and he does in full. Remember, this is Moses's enthronement. And in the same way, it's Jesus's enthronement. At the transfiguration, what's being communicated is that Jesus is God's chosen man. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one we are called to follow. Jesus, what Moses does is bring the law in part. Jesus brings it in full. And not only that, but Jesus fulfills the law. Where we fail to fulfill the law, Jesus comes and fulfills it on our behalf and graciously gifts it to us. Moses is called to bring God's rulership to Israel. Jesus then comes as the only true ruler of God's people that we are all called to pledge allegiance to and bow down to. Moses is called to bring God's presence to Israel through the temple. Jesus on his cross, when he dies, the veil tears from top to bottom and God's spirit is released from the holy of holies. And as followers of Jesus, the spirit dwells within us. God's presence is always and forever with us. What Moses brings in part, Jesus does in full. 
What Jesus is doing, what's happening in the transfiguration is that Jesus is showing off his glory as king. Even if this king must suffer and die, he is no less glorious. Actually, Jesus' suffering and death is proof of his glory. Why? Every single person that faces suffering and death dies and stays dead in a grave. Not Jesus. Jesus has power over sin. Jesus has power over Satan. Jesus has power over the grave. And he raises on the third day over death, proving that he is the glorious king. In the transfiguration, what we see coming true of Jesus is Psalm 104. My soul, praise Yahweh. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. Jesus is Yahweh and he is great and glorious and majestic and powerful. And in Revelation chapter 19, we see a promised coming reality when Christ the King will return and he will triumphantly establish his universal and unending kingdom that he will rule over in all of his glory and in all of his majesty. Now look back at Mark 9 because it gets even more beautiful here. Verses four through six. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say for they were terrified. In the transfiguration, the three disciples see three people. They see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. What's going on here? This is another event of typology. When you read your Old Testament, it's mainly made up of law and of prophets. It's mainly made up of law and prophets. And Moses is said to represent the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And so what Moses and Elijah started, Jesus came to complete. Read Malachi chapter four with me. It should be on the screen. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." What's happening here is Moses and Elijah appear at the transfiguration is that God is saying what Moses started and Elijah started, Jesus came to complete. The law has been fulfilled through Jesus and the prophecies have come true through Jesus. Only here's the difference. What the law and the prophets could only do in part, Jesus came to do in full. Namely what Malachi says, turning the hearts of children to the father turning the hearts of us to our father and creator, God. The law cannot save us. The prophets cannot save us. Only Jesus and his gospel can. Only Jesus and the power of his gospel can turn our hearts to our father in heaven in repentance to receive his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. The kingdom has drawn near through Jesus Christ in all of its glory and with it, Jesus brings redemption, glorious redemption through our glorious King. Naturally, Peter, James, and John are terrified as we would be in this event, but they want to capture the moment. They want to stay there. Let's stay on the mountain. Let's keep this going. Let's build some tents so that Elijah can stay here. Moses can stay here and Jesus can stay here. We'll sit outside, but we're just going to watch you guys. We need to keep this going. 
but the moment keeps moving. Look at verses seven and eight. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone, anyone with them, but Jesus only. What happens here? The cloud comes. The cloud representing God's presence and God's leadership. We see this in, in the story of Abraham. We see this in the story of Moses. We see this in the story of Jesus right here. And a voice speaks from the cloud, just like at Jesus' baptism moment. And this voice says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That listen to him being an emphatic statement. Follow him, bow down to him, worship him, exalt him. He is the king. He is the leader. You must follow him. What God is communicating here through this event is that Moses and Elijah are merely man. Jesus is God. Moses and Elijah are forerunners. Jesus is the fulfillment of their promises. Moses and Elijah are types. Jesus is the true reality. Moses and Elijah point to the coming kingdom. Jesus is the king who ushers in the kingdom. And God demands that Jesus be worshiped in all of his glory, might, power, dominion, and authority. Jesus is the glorious king. If you see Jesus as anything other than the glorious king, then you're seeing him wrongly. This is Jesus on the mountaintop. This is the glory of Jesus. However, right after that, we begin to see the suffering of Jesus. Jesus moving off the mountain and into the valley of suffering in verses nine through 13. Here's a perplexing thing about God's plan for the world. Uh, chapter eight ends with this ominous promise of Jesus' death on the cross. Then we get this interjection of the transfiguration. Jesus is glorious and majestic and beautiful and powerful. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus was not created. He is the created one. He is wildly and unbelievably glorious. Now, if I put myself in the shoes of Peter, James, and John in that moment, I'd have some questions for Jesus. I'd have some serious questions for Jesus. I'd be like, Jesus, what I just witnessed is that you're the glorious and powerful king. You don't need to face the cross. Let's just do everything now. Let's skip that cross moment. Jesus, you're the one who created all things and those that you created are gonna crucify you. No, no, you can just defeat them and we can start all over here. Uh, Jesus, you can just overrule everything with your breathtaking power that we just witnessed. Can't you just establish God's kingdom now? That's what I'd be thinking. Like, why do we have to do this cross thing? Why can't we just start that kingdom thing? But... The storyline of the Bible is this. The cross comes before the crown. The cross precedes the crown. Jesus says this. Jesus faces this. And this is the promise for every disciple of Jesus. The cross precedes the crown. This transfiguration moment does not weaken Jesus' resolve to go to the cross. It's emboldened him to follow the Father's will. And it should embolden the disciples. Why? Because they've stood on the mountaintop and they've seen the promised land. They've seen the coming glory. They've seen the hope they have. They've seen the savior in all of his glory. They've seen the coming kingdom through the transfiguration. And they know that this glorious future comes after the valley of suffering. The cross comes before the crown. So they must patiently endure suffering, knowing that glory is coming their way. Now I want to look at the rest of our verses here. Mark 9, 9 through 13. 
As they, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. That's the first and only time that happens. Questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Chapter eight, this promise of death then this glorious interjection of the transfiguration and then more promises of death right here in in nine through 13. Jesus says, don't say anything until I'm risen from the dead. And and even if the disciples don't understand this, it says they're perplexed by this. It does, just because they're confused doesn't mean it's not gonna happen. It does indeed happen. The son of man is gonna suffer many things and be treated with contempt. This is going back again to the Old Testament and fulfilling a promise fulfilling a name of Jesus. We see this in Daniel chapter seven. We'll have it on the screen right here. Daniel seven says this. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one, here it is, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. We just sang that song. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is an end times promise about Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. He says it right here in Mark chapter nine, the son of man must face much suffering, but on the other end of that suffering is a universal kingdom and all of its beauty and power and dominion over all nations, all languages, all peoples. And the even more beautiful promise about this is that it cannot be overcome. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be destroyed. This is an unending kingdom. And Jesus, the son of man, is the king over this kingdom. Yet for the son of man to inherit and establish this kingdom, he must first face the cross. He must first suffer and die. Just like Elijah, Mark 9 talks about Elijah, prophesied a coming day of the Lord and his coming kingdom. Yet Elijah suffered and died before this beautiful day of the Lord. So too must Jesus suffer and die before the beautiful day of the Lord when the son of man will inherit and establish his kingdom forever. Suffering and glory are not incompatible. They are intimately linked. They hold hands. The cross precedes the crown. So why this transfiguration moment? Why here in Mark 9? Why was Jesus transfigured? Got a bunch of reasons. Jesus was transfigured to reveal his true identity as God in the flesh. He is God's ruler. Jesus was transfigured to strengthen Jesus' confidence in the Father's will as he marches on the way to the cross. Jesus was transfigured to fortify the calling of the disciples to endure the cross before the crown. Jesus was transfigured to show that he was the fulfillment of the law in Moses and the prophets of Elijah as God's full and final revelation. Jesus was transfigured to confirm Peter's confession from Mark 8 that Jesus is 
the Messiah. Jesus was transfigured to teach us that he is, that the same crucified Messiah is the same glorious King. Jesus was transfigured to reaffirm the Father's love and delight in his Son. We'll talk more about that in a second. Jesus was transfigured to call us to trust and follow the one and only Son of Man who is the very radiance, glory, and power of God. Jesus is the glorious one who also suffers. The cross precedes the crown and Jesus suffers that the hearts of children might be turned to the Father. Suffering and glory are not incompatible. All right, so what does this all mean for us? I know there's a lot of Old Testament. This is theologically rich. There's a lot of quoting of scriptures um, and that's really good for us. Hear me, church. If you're only willing to go to the shallow places of God, you're leaving so much on the table. God has so much more for us if we're willing to go deep into the Old Testament, into theology, into all the things that he's promising us. Let's not just stay on the surface. Let's dive into the deep places of God. And so this, this text is primarily about the identity and calling of Jesus, the one true glorious king who suffers to establish his kingdom. But this has implications for those who follow him. If we are going to follow a cross-shaped Messiah, we must be cross-shaped disciples. And as cross-shaped, cross-informed disciples, we will face much hardship and pain and suffering in this world. We know this. Breathe for four minutes and you'll know the brokenness of this world. Every one of us brings a story into this place of different areas of suffering and pain and struggle and hardship. But hear me, the text said, as Jesus is suffering his promise, what does the father say? This is my beloved son. Just because you're suffering does not mean God does not love you. Just because you're suffering does not mean God does not love you. The suffering of following Jesus is always followed with the glory of following Jesus. And so what I wanna do is just put on the table that every one of us has stories of suffering and pain and hardship in this room. And the invitation of Jesus is to follow in his pattern, to know that our suffering is, is a sign of God's love for us and our coming glory through him. And I wanna bring an invitation for us to be honest about our suffering and to bring it before God. Nothing is too small for him. He says, cast your cares on me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? That's okay, bring it. The father says, bring that to the cross. I'll exchange it for my yoke, which is light and easy, and I will give you rest and peace. So I've got three points of application as it pertains to us facing our suffering, knowing our coming glory. Number one, Comfort in, we have comfort in the valley because we've been on the mountaintop. We have comfort in the valley because we've been on the mountaintop. Second Corinthians chapter one says this, and I want you to hear, there's a word on repeat. You're gonna pick it up in, this ver in these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Uh, I lost my place. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort with which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. What word did I just say? A ton? 
comfort. Eight or nine times by count. Jesus endured the valley of suffering. Jesus faced the cross knowing his coming glory. We too have seen our coming glory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the valley, we have comfort. It is a privilege to share in Jesus' suffering because then we too share in his comfort. In any affliction, 2 Corinthians says, we have all comfort from God. Any affliction you're facing now, depression, anxiety, job loss, financial strain, any affliction, relational strain, disease, diagnosis, sudden death, addiction, sin you cannot get rid of. In any affliction, you have all comfort from God. Any affliction, all comfort. We have comfort in the valley of suffering because we have seen our coming glory on the mountaintop. The question is, where do you need comfort? And where can you look honestly at your life and internally and say, God, I need comfort here. I'm facing suffering here. I'm facing pain here. Knowing that he says, come on, bring it to me. Bring it to me. Nothing's too small. Nothing's too big. Nothing's too out there. Come on, bring it to me. Church, can we do that? Can we be honest that this world and our lives are full of suffering and sin and brokenness? And yet in that, God says, I've come to bring you comfort. I've come to bring you hope. I've come to bring you healing. Let's bring it before him. Cast our cares on him. Number two, suffering does not eliminate hope. Suffering does not eliminate hope. Romans chapter eight, read it with me. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here's what Romans 8 is telling us. Suffering does not eliminate hope. The promise for every Christian listening to this sermon is that you have a future that is nothing but bright, nothing but glorious, nothing but full of hope, that one day everything will be set free from the bondage and brokenness of this world. There will be a day when all tears and pain and hardship and suffering will be fully eradicated and Jesus will establish his kingdom. And in that kingdom, there will be no existence of suffering. There there will be no existence of sin. There will be no existence of disease. There will be no existence of addiction. There will be no existence of anything that brings us suffering in this world. All there will be is glorious harmony and bliss with Jesus Christ. And we will worship him forevermore in the perfect kingdom. That is our hope. That is coming our way. The, the, the creation that is subjected to futility will be set free through the coming of Jesus Christ. That is what is coming. So all the suffering we face now is nothing in comparison to the future glory we have through Jesus Christ. We suffer and we suffer as a people not without hope. Here's what suffering wants to do to you, Christian. Suffering wants to tell you 
that God is a liar, that his promises are not true, that he's not gonna establish a kingdom. As a matter of fact, suffering is gonna try to lie to you and tell you God doesn't love you. Your suffering is evidence that God actually hates you. All of that is a lie from Satan. We will face suffering and, it, and even in the midst of it, we still have hope. Hear me, Christian, hope is not crossing our fingers. Hope is not superstition. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is rock solid confidence in the promises of Jesus Christ. The promises from Romans chapter eight, the promise that Jesus will come and restore all things. So whatever you're facing now, one day it's gonna be gone and you're gonna be with Jesus forever. I'm trying to get off the stage and come worship with you guys because I just want to see Jesus. We have hope in him. Suffering wants to tell you you have no hope. That's a lie. Christian, cling to the hope and promises of Jesus. Suffering does not eliminate hope. Come back up here. Number three, final thing. Jesus's eternal glory and the glory we have through him is the only way we can make sense of our temporary suffering. First Peter chapter one. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, suffering, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The only way we can make sense of our temporary suffering is because of our inheritance through Jesus Christ. So many of us have a Christian nihilism. It's all meaningless. It's all useless. It all evaporates into the air. And we don't know how to make sense of our suffering. The way we make sense of our suffering is that through our suffering, our faith is being proved genuine. As we cling to Christ as our only hope, as we shed our clinging to this world, as we shed our clinging to our sin, as we shed our clinging to the old man, all of those things we try to cling on to to save us and to give us hope and to restore us, none of those things can save us. What happens through suffering is our faith is proved genuine. And we grip to Jesus Christ knowing he and he alone can save us and sustain us and carry us and help us endure these things. And so in our trials, grieved in our various trials, the text says, our faith is being proved genuine. Therefore, we worship with a joy that is joyful an inexpressible joy. That's redundant, and Peter is doing that on purpose. He wants us to show us we have an otherworldly joy because we know what's coming for us. And the only way we can make sense of our temporary suffering is through the eternal glory that's coming through Jesus Christ. So my question is, how do you make sense of your suffering? Do you make sense of your suffering by saying it's someone else's fault, I'm just a victim of someone else? I just wanna blame shift here. 
Do you make sense of your suffering but by saying, I'm just a loser, I've ruined my life? Do you make sense of your suffering by trying not to look at it? That's what the American church tries to tell us for generations now. Don't look at your suffering, just have positive thinking. It's all gonna change. Baloney, absolute baloney. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it ain't real. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. Your faith will become sight. How do we deal with our suffering? The only way we can make sense of our suffering is by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who will carry us through, who will sustain us, and who will bring his unending kingdom. All of those are promises. I use the word will on purpose. It will come to pass, Christian. Suffering and glory are not incompatible. The cross precedes the crown. So for everyone that's listening that's not a Christian, let me just say this. There's hope on the table for you. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you hope. Come to me. I got you. All you gotta do is turn from your sin and trust in him. Confess that he is Lord, he is Messiah, he is King, and you will willingly lay everything down to follow him. In that moment, you will be fully, freely, and forever forgiven of your past, present, and future. You will forever be a member of his kingdom. That's all you gotta do. For every Christian hearing me, listen, Jesus will carry you through your suffering, okay? He's gonna do it. He will do it. He is strong enough to, to do it. He is the glorious, majestic, beautiful, powerful one. Cling to him. Cling to his word. Pray to him. Commune with him. Get in community with other believers that can carry you through. This will happen. He will not let you down. He will not forsake you. He will not turn his back on you and neither will we. We are with you and for you. And even more importantly, Jesus is with you and for you. Turn to him and cling to him. Suffering and glory are not incompatible. The cross precedes the crown. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his cross, his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you that he faced suffering, that we might have hope that we might have life, that the hearts of children might be turned to the Father. God, I pray you would exalt Jesus as the glorious, beautiful King right now and that every one of us in this room, outside, online, would transfix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the glorious one, the one who did face suffering, that we might have glory. Wherever we find ourselves now, would we be honest? We bring our suffering, our pain, and our hardship to you. Confess those things to you. Find comfort and hope in these places, knowing that we've been on the mountaintop, we've seen the coming glory, therefore we can endure in the valley of suffering. God, give us hope. We need it. In Christ's name, amen.